asking if I need to be introduced. Uh, <laughs> hey, everybody, I'm Rob. Uh, listen, before we get into the, to the word, let's just take some time and pray for Pastor Bastia and, and Haiti. Uh, you know, I think it, it, that's an apropos response to this. So, Father, uh, right now, we just we put Pastor Bastia in your hands, he and his family, and all the work that they're doing there. Lord, we know that in your hands everything is safe. But we also know that there are forces at work in this world that run contrary to your will. And so we pray for special protection. We ask you, God, to surround him, to care for him. Father, care for his mother, care for his extended family, care for all of the workers there at the compound. Keep them safe, Lord God. And we pray, Lord, for Haiti as a whole. Uh, Help them, Father. Help that nation find its footing in stability. Help our nation grow a conscience to care and to find concern for that country. Help us, Father, all the way around to, to do what's right and what's good and what preserves the least among us. Because when we care for the least, we're caring for you, Father. And so we pray, Lord, that those who are marginalized, those who are victimized in this cruel world's system, we pray for help and interference from heaven, and we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. We 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 get onto this subject of things that are are bad and troublesome, and it raises the issue of theodicy. Anybody know what theodicy is? It's not the Odyssey. It's the Odyssey, and it means trying to understand how it is that God operates or works in this world. Like, how is a good, um, omnipotent, omnipresent God allowing for such evil to take place? And it's a, it's a reasonable question that we would have as human beings. We were meeting with uh, some of the city officials last week, and the city planner was kind of listing off all of the things that Bay County has gone through since, you know, since the hurricane, since Hurricane Michael came through. And, you, you know, you have back-to-back hurricanes when Sally comes through and then a pandemic and the economic stress that we've faced and the shutdown and all of this kind of stuff. And granted, in, com- uh, in contrast to Haiti, it's not anywhere close, but it doesn't negate the fact that we have, as a, as a community, faced our troubles, you know, faced some severe hardships uh, along the way. And it's a natural question for human beings in the midst of something like that, of getting walloped like this, to start asking why, you know, looking to God and saying, why? Why is this happening, God? Is this punishment for something? Did we do something wrong? Are you mad at us, God? What's, what's happening here? Humans have a long history of asking that question, and it touches on something that we're going to be considering this morning as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along, which I recommend... Go to uh, Luke chapter 13, if you would. Last week, as we finished up chapter 12, it took us a month to get through chapter 12. So, you know, <laughs> yay. Uh, so uh, Jesus, in chapter 12, as he was finishing that up, warned about the upheaval that the gospel brings into this world. When you introduce a gospel of self-sacrificial love and of a God who, who, who cares uh, 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 for people, and you introduce that into a world that is very self-centric, it becomes problematic. It becomes very polarizing in a lot of ways. And, and this is what Jesus was warning us about, that you know, there, each of us has to count the cost of what it's going to mean to identify with Jesus. Today that, today, that warning tone continues as Jesus talks about 
calamities that occurred during the, the writing of this gospel that he kind of comments on and sort of leads us along the path of what to make of them or, or better yet, how to respond, the right response. And interestingly enough, repentance becomes uh, a largely thematic section as Jesus is dealing with calamity, which I thought was intriguing. And I'm really interested in this whole subject here. So uh, I might get a little excited. I won't get excited. I'm not going to be Pentecostal, but I am kind of excited about what we're going to be reading here. Not that there's anything wrong with Pentecostals. I, I love Pentecostals. This is just not, I'm not going to wave a hanky. But uh, so if you're there in Luke 13, let's start with verse one. It says about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Literally, it says he mixed the blood of the Galileans with the blood of their offerings. But that's what it's trying to convey is the idea that they were there to celebrate the Passover and they were killed. Now, it's very important to remember the context of this section here. Luke locates this in a specific moment. He says, at that time, and of course we think, what time? Well, we would think the time in which he said these things previously there in chapter 12, but also the larger context at that time when Jesus, do you remember what Jesus is doing? You may not, but Jesus, we're in a section here in Luke that's called the travel narrative. Jesus is traveling with a group. He's basically leading a group of Galilean pilgrims down to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe the Passover, the annual Passover uh, and, and, and so this gets at why this news was shared with Jesus. A group of Galileans, just like Jesus's group, had just been slaughtered at the whim of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Now, we don't know about this specific incident from history, but we do know about Pontius Pilate from historical records. And history does not remember him favorably at all. Neither Roman historians nor uh, other outside uh, historians. Josephus, uh, the ancient uh, Jewish historian, records a similar incident when Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct to bring uh, water into Jerusalem, which he saw as benevolent. He took from the temple treasury to pay for it, which, of course, sparked massive protests among the Jewish people. And they were all out in front of his palace. And so to address and deal with that, Pilate had Roman soldiers dress up as civilians and go out in their midst with clubs and swords hidden under their robes, and they began slaughtering everybody that was there for the protest. That is how Pilate dealt with things. Of course, it caused all kinds of uproar, even got in trouble with, uh, with uh, uh, Tiberius, the emperor at that time. But either way, what this tells us is we see that Pilate was prone to this sort of activity. We may not know the specifics of this, but we know that Pilate was capable of this. In Luke's account, we're not given much detail. It's a group of Galileans. They're pilgrims. They're there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And for some reason, maybe they started a protest. There's no, there's no telling. But for some reason, they're executed by Pilate. And we can imagine the urgency then of this question, because what's implied in this report are a few questions. In other words, when they're coming and saying this, they're also saying, Jesus, should we continue traveling to Jerusalem? I mean, given how dangerous it is for Galileans there, and we being Galileans are on our way. I mean, it's just like, okay, so in, in Haiti, you know, Kim and the group, they're traveling to Haiti, and all of a sudden they find out Americans are being targeted. There's a problem there. Kind of makes you want to check Travelocity and see if there's some other place that needs missionaries or, or something. So there's something in this that they're they're concerned about that there's something else hanging in the air that's it's implicit in this and it gets to what jesus is going to respond 
Jesus has just been warning about the consequences of rejecting the Messiah, of rejecting the gospel, warning about Israel's national culpability for refusing God's offered salvation. And people might have naturally started wondering when they heard this report, is this it? Has God started his judgment now? Is he getting after these people? Is he getting those people that have rejected Jesus? And is this God's uh, way of getting at the people that were snubbing his plan? Is their sin the reason for this calamity? And so let's read Jesus' response in verse 2. He says, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is, Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. What about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners in, the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I'll tell you again, that unless you repent, you'll perish too. So I remember after the first earthquake in Haiti, what, back in 2010. You remember when that happened? And it was just a horrible scene. But I also remember that, that many Christians were quick to, to get out front saying, hey, this is judgment from God. This is God's judgment on a nation. And they pointed out largely the, 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 you know, the practice of, of voodoo uh, religion and all of that. And, and so a news reporter asked me at one point, you know, he said, why do you think this earthquake happened? And obviously it was a very loaded question. And so I said, well, as best as I understand it, tectonic plates shifted and and caused a massive release of energy, which then moved like waves through the earth's crust, which would have disrupted all the buildings, caused them to fall down. Uh, My answer never aired. (laughs) Uh, I don't think it was sensational enough, but I based my answer on what Jesus says here. And what Jesus is saying here is basically the entire theme of the book of Job, namely that the events of this world are not automatically ruled by the law of divine reciprocity. Reciprocity, uh, you know, if we do what's right, God rewards us. If we do what's wrong, God punishes us. And all through the Bible, we are warned not to judge people or events by that standard. Uh, You know, uh, (laughs) as I said, the entire book of Job is about that. Now, granted, we have the book of Proverbs that comes along and says, hey, you know, it says exactly those things. Do what's right, you'll live. Do what's wrong, you're going to be miserable. But then we've also got the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job who come right after that saying, yeah, not so fast. Uh, There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. And it's not always that simple to just figure out reciprocity. Those deserved it, those didn't deserve it. Uh, And in the Job, We've got a righteous man who who suffered terribly and his unhelpful friends kept trying to apply the law of reciprocity to him and he kept defending himself until finally God just shows up in it and says, cut it out. You guys don't know anything about what's happening here. But still it seems that our natural fallback position as human beings, you know, if if something bad happens to a person or to people, we look for the reason that it happened. Well, I wonder why that happened over there. Partly we do this to try to comfort ourselves with a false sense of control. You know, well, at least I'm not like them, so I know that's not going to happen to me. But also because we desperately want to make sense of events that often, like, just, just face it, seem senseless that go on in this world. 
you know, earthquake hitting Haiti, that's bouncing the rubble. I mean, that's a, why? Why in the world would that happen there? There's a lot of things that go on in this world that just don't make sense and that we can't easily make sense out of. And we certainly are not invited to, to flatten things out into a simplistic law of reciprocity that sometimes ends up condemning people unnecessarily. And let's face it, there's a lot of terrible and senseless things in this world. And when we go around trying to explain it, I'm telling you, some people have gotten into some terrible theological places with that. Because explaining events based on reciprocity inevitably makes God out to be a deity whose primary interest is looking for sin so that he can punish it. And that is exactly not how the Bible portrays God to us. Yet so many people see him that way. As though he's got the giant divine fly swatter just um, we're watching you, waiting for us to screw up. Now, this doesn't mean that calamity uh, and suffering are disconnected from sin and evil. And so I want to make that clear. The Bible shows that the whole reason calamity is even here is because of sin. Sin came in and disrupted this whole thing. There was something that God had that he was developing and it was beautiful and it was perfect and sin has altered that. And so it entered the scene and everything goes stupid because of it. It, it is the, we could say then that sin is the existential cause of suffering, but not always the precise or practical cause, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes the Bible will draw a direct line of connection between a specific sin and, and a consequence, a consequential judgment. But it doesn't always do that. And because it doesn't always do that, then we, as the creation, have to be careful that we don't usurp some place that we're not supposed to be, that we don't start taking, <laughs> taking the reins of assessing this judgment ourselves. We also need to recognize that there's a cause and effect at work in some of these things as well. You know, if I'm speeding down the road, disobeying, I'm breaking the law, and I'm, uh, <laughs> that sounded like a song. Uh, anyway, I'm speeding down the road, and I hit a curve in the road that I can't, make in time and I go crashing through the guardrail and wreck my car, well, that's a cause and effect. That is a consequence of a specific behavior. I behaved that way and that's what it resulted in. So even we could even look at the very idea of of Roman violence and collapsing buildings is actually pointing towards a consequence for Israel. Jesus is warning that unless they give up this nationalistic idea of ending exile by force, by defying the Roman government, then they're going to experience the full weight of Roman violence, which happened. Many people in Israel were killed and the buildings all were torn down in 70 AD when General Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. That event in Israel's history really wasn't so much reciprocity as it was cause and effect. They rejected God's plan. They followed their own plan and their own plan was heading towards that curve in the road. And really, Jesus is hinting that good people, people who had put their trust in him, would actually be facing that same calamity because of the curve in the road that Israel was barreling towards. And his point is, don't start judging people or elevating ourselves because of some calamity that we witness. It wasn't that they deserved it more than someone else. The reality is, we all deserve it. I mean, the reality is none of us did this right. 
There's an old movie from 30 years ago. I really like it. It's an old Clint Eastwood movie called Unforgiven. Anybody ever seen it? It's a cowboy movie. Um, There's a scene in that movie where a young gunslinger has just killed a man, and he's sick with guilt and regret over it. And he's trying to talk himself through it. And he finally at one point says, well, I guess he had it coming anyway. And the old grizzled gunslinger, Clint Eastwood, looks at him and says, we all got it coming, kid. And that's kind of what's being uh, said here. Those Galileans or those construction workers weren't better or worse. All of humanity is in this same boat because of the introduction of sin into this world. But see, that's where this gets hopeful to me. Because of what Jesus said in verses 3 and 5. In essence, he's saying humanity has it coming unless, and that unless is not a threat. Understand that. That hits a declaration of hope. I mean, imagine you've got a character in a story and the character is in a boat and it's heading towards a massive waterfall. It's certain doom for that character unless... He can grab a hold of a branch near the side and pull himself to safety on the bank of the river. That unless is pregnant with hope. Unless changes everything. Unless what? And this is the main emphasis of this text here today. Unless they change their mind and turn around. That's what repent means. Way too often within the evangelical sphere of life, repent is associated with coming to an altar or crying some tears or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. Well, I mean, it can have. I mean, that can be some sort of emotional response. But the point of it is to repent means I've changed my mind about this and I'm turning around. I was going this way. I'm going this way now. And this, I believe, has a dual application. First, I think he was warning Israel about their date with Rome in 70 AD. But I also believe it has a, 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 a larger meaning. And that is turning from self-will to God's will is the only path there is to true life, to real life. When Jesus says, if we don't repent, if we don't turn around, we'll perish too. And he doesn't mean by that, that, you know, you're a sinner if you die. He couldn't mean that, you know. Dying simply means a person is mortal and the clock ran out. That's, we've got a specific amount of time. But I do believe he means that if we don't repent, then death is the end and meaninglessness is all there is. In the original language, it says you will likewise or you will perish in the same way. A lot of the translations that you may have will, will say it in there, worded in there, you will likewise perish. But it means you'll perish the same way. Now, what did Jesus mean? He wasn't saying like, if you don't repent somewhere down the line, even up to our day, if you don't repent, you know, a Roman soldier is going to jump out of the bushes and kill you or a big block is going to fall on you. He's saying in the same way, meaning something beyond just the specifics of how they died. Obviously, you know, there's this idea. The Galileans and the workers of that tower that that died, we would describe their death as being meaningless, right? As being a pointless, futile tragedy. The idea is a life lived outside of the hope in God, a life cut off from the meaning and the value that God provides to it, would end in that same meaningless tragedy that surrounded those Galileans and those construction workers. Repent, repent of that. Turn around from the direction that that's going. And the op would mean the opposite of that. The opposite promise of that is to have life that is meaningful. That's the idea behind this. Obviously, you know, when, when we talk about life for us as believers who've embraced 
a faith in Jesus Christ, it comes inherently with a hope of eternal life, a life that never ends, a life that goes on. But there's also this idea present here of, of the right here and now life that we live, a life that transcends the meaninglessness of this broken world. Because we've admitted, we've acknowledged a lot of meaningless and senseless things happen in this world. What if we could have a life that transcended that, that was able to see beyond just the meaninglessness of it and recognize there's something else happening here? That is why Paul was able to make that promise in Romans 8, 28. God is working through all things for the good, the eternal good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's the whole idea behind what he's saying there. That's, that doesn't mean that we're insulated from painful or difficult or even calamitous events in life. And it certainly doesn't mean that God is the author of those things that happen. But it does mean that nothing we face is without significance. It may seem senseless, but it is not without significance in what it is that God can do with it. And God can work through even the bad stuff that happens to reshape it into something that benefits us eternally. That is the kind of hope that sets us apart from the rest of this broken world. We may experience the same events. The believers in Haiti are facing the same events that everybody else is facing. But we have the promise from our creator, the redeemer of all things, that he will take those things and redeem them. Sometimes we'll see it in this life, but most certainly we will see it when this life ends. And there's great hope in that. That that leads us to a point of view and a perspective about life that, as I said, transcends these things so that we don't live in them or build our identities on those problems. We build our identities on the reality that there's a God who loves us, who put that branch out there so that we didn't have to go over the fall in that boat. That's the whole promise of God's kingdom. That is the promise of the gospel. God's kingdom is moving into the neighborhood and setting all things right. A life that's cut off from that hope is no life at all. I can't tell you, I don't, I don't even like to think about how many funerals I've done since I've been a pastor. And So many funerals that I've done for families of believers have found so much comfort in the promises that we have from the word. And I've heard so many times, I don't know how people who don't have faith in Jesus endure this and deal with this. And I have to agree with them. Uh, uh, You know, a life cut off from that hope. What kind of a life is that? Jesus points to that branch, the rescue from meaninglessness. Turn from pursuing selfish will and embrace God's intent for life. It draws out that meaningful, purposeful value of who we are as human beings. That is the hope that salvation brings, not just far away in the sky somewhere else, but right here, right now, this day, we know who we belong to. We know where this is going and we know the one in control loves us. What an amazing hope that is. All right, well, let's just keep reading here. Verse 6. Then Jesus told a story. (laughs) Now, Janelle made a comment that when Jesus tells a story, everybody knows he's mad. I'm not convinced that's correct, (laughs) but I think he's trying to drive something home here. Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden, and he came again 
to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Real quick, why is he planting a fig tree in a, in a vineyard anyway? It's a garden. It's literally a vineyard. Uh, it, 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 was, it was helpful, apparently, for the grapes that would grow, blah, blah, blah. Either way, in case that was going to bother you through the rest of it, we'll settle that one. Verse 7, finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years. There hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not then you can cut it down. And that's where the story ends. So once again, Jesus tells a story that he just leaves dangling there. Like, well, what happened? Did did it work? Was that a good plan or not? And again, we suppose the reason it's left open-ended is so that we can supply the answer for that. What's going to happen in our lives because of this? So then we ask, what's Jesus getting at in, in this story? Now, this has been interpreted a lot of different ways. There's a predominant way in which it's interpreted to say that the main gardener, or I mean that the garden owner, not the main gardener, but the garden owner is, is viewed as God, the Father, and the gardener is Jesus, and God wants to punish the fruitless people of Israel and then the rest of the world because it had Messiah in front of them for all this time, but Jesus intercedes and convinces him not to punish everybody. That feels a little schizophrenic to me. If I'm just going to be honest with you, just as we're, as we're looking at it like that, uh, as though God the Father is really angry and wrathful and Jesus is just trying to get him to chill out and back off for a minute, I'm not totally convinced with that explanation. I've read everybody's views on the, Well, not everybody's, but I've read multiple views on this that are trying to support that view. It's not compelling. It's not convincing to me. As I'm looking at it, Let's remember, let's always keep it in the context. The context started with the assumption of reciprocity, right? That were these guys worse sinners? Uh, and is that why this happened? Those Galileans probably were fruitless and therefore deserved what they got. They got cut down. I think the gardener, or the garden owner rather, garden owner, represents how we, in our humanity, tend to view life through a lens of fault and blame. I think it's more of a description of, well, this is how things work. This is how things operate, to which God's kingdom comes in and offers an alternative course, a different perspective on this. If the world or the people around us or someone in particular falls short, fails to live up to God's values, we, like some in the first part of this chapter, are ready to judge and assume punishment is going to follow. But the gardener, the one through whom the garden really came about, steps in and corrects the one who's claimed ownership of that garden. And in verse 8, he says, give it another chance. And literally in the Greek, it means to permit or to allow it more time. And in the Greek, the word used there is the root word for forgiveness. So like back in chapter 11, when Jesus was teaching us how to pray, forgive us our sins, it's the root word that he's used here. Uh, And I think... This is totally connected to the first five verses. And I think Jesus is trying to communicate to us something. Remember, the context, law of reciprocity. I think that we're learning that God's intent is and always has been to bring out what's best in us. And the more I consider this parable, the more beautiful it becomes to me. God isn't sitting around blaming us, looking for those faults so that he can smush them. He's actively encouraging us towards 
a fruitful life, to be better human beings. This isn't who you were made to be. There's something greater for you. The gardener promises special attention to the fruitless tree. Give it plenty of fertilizer, which, you know, means poop. But either way, put what's necessary out there to provide what's needed to the surrounding soil to promote fruit production. And so we could think, well, what would that be, Rob? What, how would you do that? Well, I don't know, but maybe, maybe in the analogy, a good community that supports a believer and in, in, in holds us accountable and challenges us towards what's good and what's right and what's, what's in harmony with God's character and his values. Maybe it's an encouragement to get into God's word, to be reshaped in our understanding of life and, and what we should pursue as priorities. Maybe, and, and, and you're not going to like this, but maybe it's trials to encourage us towards a, a faithful trust in God in those things that we face in this broken and difficult world. But what comes across in all of this is that the gardener's intent is to help. And if the gardener's intent is to help, no matter how we parse this, you know, even if you want to call the other the father, that's fine. But the gardener's intent is clear. It is to help. God's purpose is loving towards humans. And that's profound to me. I mean, in light of the thematic idea of fruitlessness and sin, I think we're really prone and ready to to talk about fruitlessness and sin and get out that divine fly swatter and begin swatting at everything and taking care of it and judging those things to solve it and resolve it. But what if God's solution to sin isn't punishment but love. Bear with me. What if, what if God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe on him wouldn't die but have a life that goes on forever? What if God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Wouldn't that be good news? That's the kind of good news I believe God has sent into this world. That's the good news I believe we as his church were armed with to go into a broken and painful place and declare and light up for the world around us the hopeful promise that we have through Jesus Christ that we will find life and life abundantly. So let's take Jesus' words and let's meditate on them this week. Let's consider how often we fall into viewing through the lens of reciprocity. And let's allow God to correct our thinking on that. Let's, Let's actively and intently surrender that judge's gavel back to God where it belongs. Let's remember that, that self-will and selfish pursuits are never going to lead us towards the life that we long for, only surrendering to God's purposes, our creator, who knows what we were intended for. Only that is going to lead us into that meaningful, purposeful, value-filled life that satisfies us. And let's remember that God loves us no matter what that his plan is to draw what's best in us so that we can then, like a light on a hill, show off 
the goodness of this God who saved us to a world who so desperately 